We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. From Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the, to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. And as you do, let let me pray for us. Father, would you uh, calm and still our hearts in this moment? You know the things that are consuming us. You know the things that we are fearful about, the things that we're worried about, the things that keep us up at night, the things that we walk into this room feeling massive amounts of unrest or anxiety in life, or just maybe just distraction. Would you come and help us right in this moment to be still and to hear from you? And God, we need ears to hear because we have so many voices in our lives, voices within and voices without. But the voice that we need more than anything else right now in this moment is yours. And so we pray that you would come and speak. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, okay. All right. Good morning. All right. There we go. Um, so last week, we actually, we started a new series. If you weren't here, we started a new series on the life of Abraham. And uh, we're really doing this for two main reasons. First, uh, I mentioned this last week, but many people have the impression that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two very, very different gods. That, that when you come to the New Testament, you get this God who is full of love and grace, but when you turn back you know, to the Old Testament and to parts where you read about the story, stories of people like Abraham, that God is just kind of cranky and just kind of mad and just wants to come down really, really hard on people. And uh, many Christians even perceive this, and maybe you perceive this, and what we're going to see in this series is that that just simply is not the case. That from the first page to the last page of the Bible, uh, this is a God who sets his affections on broken, messy people, people who can't seem to get it right, people who are constantly failing, people like Abraham, people like you and me. And that's why we're calling this series God's Faithfulness to Unfaithful People. But the second reason we're doing this series is because in the story of Abraham, we see someone who meets God and their life is supernaturally changed. And that really is what it means to be a Christian. If you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, it just means that you have a personal encounter with God and that your life is put on an entirely new trajectory. And that is a trajectory that does not take you out of this world, but like Abraham, it gives you a completely new way of living in it. And so today, uh, as we're kind of walking through the story of Abraham, we come to this story in Genesis chapter 13 between Abraham and Lot. And what we find in this story is not just, it's not just a contrast between two people. It's really a contrast between two ways of living. Lot shows us what it means to have a small life. And Abraham shows us what it means to have a big life. Now, I want you to think about this because Jesus says the reason that he came was so that we could have an abundant life. And an abundant life is a big life. It's a life that is full of joy and of meaning and of purpose. And no matter where you are this morning on the spectrum of spirituality, whether you were convinced of the things we've been praying and seeing, whether you're utterly unconvinced, whether you're trying to figure out if you could ever believe these things, wherever you are on that spectrum, every single person in this room wants a big life. None of us want a small life. I have a good friend who's, who's a pastor in the South Bay, and uh, several years ago there was a man named Art who, who showed up to his church, and um, Art was not a Christian. And as my friend got to know Art, it turned out that Art had a very interesting story. His, his mother had fled from China under Mao Zedong to the United States. And he grew up very poor. He had very little means. But, but Art had accomplished incredible success in his life. He'd been a very successful entrepreneur. He was a grandmaster chess champion. He had massive wealth. But now he was coming to church, and the reason he was coming to church was because he had stage five cancer and he was dying. And my friend spent a lot of time with Art. He was, he was 
spent a lot of time going to Art's house, and every time they would sit down and Art would start to talk about his life, and he would kind of boast in all of his accomplishments and all of his successes, and he would always say, you know, I've done everything I've wanted, I have everything I wanted, I have no regrets. And even as his health declined and he was relegated to a walker and really couldn't leave his house and his breathing became labored, my friend would still go sit with him and and every time he would still end saying, you know, I have no regrets. Until finally, just days before he died, my friend was sitting with Art and he burst into tears one day and he said, I have so many regrets. Now, I want to contrast that story with another story. It's the story of William Borden. And William Borden was the heir to the, to the, dairy, the Borden dairy fortune. He had way more wealth than Art had. Uh, he, he graduated, he went to Princeton and then Yale for grad school. And when he graduated in 1912, he had all sorts of you know, career opportunities that were going to pay him incredible amounts of money. But he, instead, he decided to go to China and be a missionary. And in the course of his trip there, he he contracted spiral meningitis, and and he died weeks later, 25 years old. When they collected the few belongings that that he had, and they they mailed them back to the States, to his family, his family was going through this, this tiny little box of things that had come back from him, and included in that box was his Bible. And on the second page of his Bible were two words, no regrets. Now think about that. I mean, one person had everything. And yet when he got to the end of his life, he said it felt small and empty and he had tons of regret. And the other person gave up everything. And yet life felt big and full That's what every person in this room wants. None of us want to get to the end and think, what was it all for? We want a life that is big and full of joy and meaning and purpose. And the question is, how do you get it? And what does it even look like? And that's actually what we're going to see in this text this morning and in this contrast between these two people. So here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. You get a big life. How do you get a big life? You get a big life when people don't exist for you, but you exist for them. Let me say that again. You get a big life when people don't exist for you, but you exist for them. At the very beginning of this chapter, we learn that Abraham and Lot are are traveling together throughout the land with their families. And they're related, actually. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And verse 5 tells us that they've both become pretty wealthy. See, wealth in those days was not measured by your your bank account or your stock options or your house. Your your wealth was measured by your livestock. And what we see in verse 5 is that both of them, they had so much livestock that they actually had to split up because the land couldn't accommodate both of their livestock together. And so the real surprise in this comes in verse 9. Where Abraham says to Lot, he says, you choose which way, to, which way to go, which way you want to go, and I'll go the other way. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, 
all go right. Now, there's two reasons why this is, a, this is a surprise. First, the text makes it very clear that one option is, is, is clearly better than the other. But second, it's a surprise because Abraham lived in a traditional society. You know, age and seniority was everything. Abraham, the right to decide who went, who went which way, was actually Abraham's to decide. And yet he lets Lot make it, which would have been unheard of in the ancient world. You see, Abra- here's the point. Abraham lets Lot choose. And you know what he's doing? He's, he's giving up his own rights in this moment. He's, he's seeking the interests of someone else above his own. And what we're getting in this moment is a picture of real greatness. In, in, uh, in, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is walking with two of his disciples, James and John. And they look at him and they say, you know, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. In other words, make us great. We want importance. We want status. And Jesus looks at them and he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become a slave of all. This is Jesus' way of saying, if you want a big life, you have to get small. If you want to be great, you have to become a servant. Now, on the one hand, we know this. Because people who are consumed with their own self-importance tend to be seen as having very small and narrow lives. But on the other hand, this goes against everything that our hearts and our culture tells us. I heard a story from a pastor named uh, Joe Novison, who tells a story of a trip that he, he t- once took to India. And he was, he was staying in the house of an Indian pastor named P.T. Chandapilla. And one evening they're, they're uh, in Chandapilla's house. It's just this one-room house. And this American pastor is trying to fall asleep, but he's having a really hard time because it's unbearably hot. And, and this Indian pastor can hear his American friend kind of tossing and turning in his bed. And so he said to him, he said, Joe, please open your Bible. It's kind of never what you want to hear. You know, you know something serious is coming, you know, at midnight when someone says, please open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. And, and Novenson opened his Bible and he said, Joe, please read me those words. And he said, and this is the passage, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Christ's sake. And then this Indian pastor asked him, he said, Joe, do you preach Christ as Lord? And Novenson said, yes, I try. And Chandapilla said, good, keep trying. Do you preach yourself as a slave? And Novenson paused and he said, I don't think so because I'm not even sure I know what that means. And this Indian pastor looked at him in the moment, this moment and he said, you're right, you're an American. You'll lead anyone, but you will serve no one. And P.T. Chanapil actually wrote a book called Servant. And in that book, he, he says this, he says, in human history, we see multiple examples of servanthood, but they are rarely cast in a positive light. In Roman culture, the free man was over the bond man, In the Hindu culture, 
The entire caste system exists in measure to put people above and below, master and slave. In the Islamic tradition, the believer is seen above the unbeliever. In the Marxist teaching, there's the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. But along came Jesus, who said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. This means Christian servanthood can often appear to lead to what others would call failure. Success, according to the world's standards, and Christian servanthood will collide. Servanthood welcomes and embraces loss. True servanthood experiences loss for the good of those served. And you see, here's the point, friends. We think that a big life comes through self-importance. And Jesus actually says it comes through self-sacrificial love and service. It doesn't come when other people exist to make you great. It comes when you exist to make them great. And I just want to ask you a question this morning. Or actually, I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. If you believed this, how would it transform your relationships? How would it transform your friendships, your relationships with your roommates, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with people in this church? What would it look like if your posture was not you for me, but me for you? It would change everything. See, the way to be great is to get low. The way to have a big life is to get small. It's when people don't exist for you, but you exist for them. But here's, here's the second thing we see in this passage. How do you get a big life? It's when you own your stuff rather than your stuff owning you. Let's talk about Lot's decision for just a moment. And I already mentioned this, but the text makes it very clear that, uh, that one option is clearly better than the other. Uh, it, it says that, it tells us that, that Abraham and Lot are, are between Bethel and Ai. Now, if you went there today, you know what you'd find? You'd find a place that is mostly dry and arid. It's almost like a desert. Except for this one little part. It's the plain of the Jordan River. It's, the, it's where the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea. And, and what you have there is you have lots of green. It's fertile. Which meant that it would have been the ideal place to go if your wealth was in your livestock. It would have meant more, more water, more, more pasture, more money, actually. And so, you know, the, we just kind of have to stop and ask here, why is the passage giving so much attention to Lot's decision? Because it seems like kind of the no-brainer. I mean, it's the decision that you and I would make 10 times out of 10. And so, you know, well, what's, what's the big deal? What's the problem? Well, verse 10, look at verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord. Something deep is going on inside Lot's heart here. Lot is not just seeing a way to make more money. He's seeing Eden. 
What did we have? What did humanity have in the Garden of Eden? You know, we had we had a big life. We had life with God. We had real glory. We had real greatness. We had real joy. But we lost it. And ever since, we have been trying to get it back. Through money, but not just through money. Through, through sex, through power, through relationships, through marriage and family. See, why, think about this. Here you have Lot standing, standing on top of this mountain, looking out going, where can I move that's going to give me what I'm longing for? Why is it that people move to the Bay Area? Why do people come here? You know, on the surface, people move here for school. People move here for work. People move here for all sorts of of, of, of recreational opportunities that are available to you uh, in Tahoe or on the coast or in Napa. See, but deep down, you know, why, you know why people move here? Because we look at this place and we say, the garden. The garden. We, we, we're all like Lot, actually. We are all like Lot standing on top of this mountain, looking out on the horizons of our lives and thinking, if only. <laughs> you know, if only, I, if only I could get into the right school, then I'd have a big life. Then life would be full and meaningful. If only I could find the right career. If only I could find the right person to marry. If only I could have real financial freedom. And you say, you know, what's wrong with having these things? Nothing is wrong with having any of these things. These are all good things. The problem is when we think these things can give us what we had in the garden. Because the moment you think that, you know what happens? You don't have those things. Those things have you. You don't possess them. They possess you. Uh, I have a, a friend who has a friend uh, who, who had a, he used to have a pet snake. And, and, you know, I'm not sure if this story is true. And I asked him again this week, and I was like, is this really true? And he said, yes, it is. So I'm just going to tell you. But, you know, apparently this person lives in Florida, so you kind of never know what's going to happen. All right, so this person had, they had a pet snake. And they were so obsessed with this snake that they slept with the snake. They, they shared their bed with this snake. Now, this is not just like a little wormy garden, you know, snake. This was like a massive boa constrictor. They slept in half of the bed, and the snake slept in the other half of the bed. And one day, they noticed that the snake had stopped eating. For three weeks, the snake didn't touch its food. And so finally, they thought, you know, this snake must be sick. He's not well. We need to go to the vet. So they show up to the vet, and immediately the vet figures out what's going on and says, whenever a snake is about to eat a really large prey. <laughs> it stops eating so it can make room. Now, what is the point? 
The point is never get in bed with a snake. Actually, actually, the point is that the moment you look to anything in this world and you think if only, or you think the garden, or you think if I have that, then I will have a big life. The moment you think that, rather than possessing that thing, it possesses you and it drives your life. When beauty becomes your God, you will kill yourself to get skinnier or more fit or to have your skin look a certain way. And you'll never feel beautiful enough. When career becomes your God, you become a workaholic and you, you can't rest. When money becomes your God, you're always worried and you feel like you never have enough. So you don't have these things. They have you. You don't control them. They control you. And like Lot, you know what it ends up doing? It gives you a small life. Because life becomes all about your own self-preservation. But look at Abraham. You know, why is it that Abraham is willing to let Lot make the decision? Abraham isn't blind. He sees exactly what Lot sees. He, he, he knows that in letting Lot decide, he is foregoing financial gain and success, which must mean that his money doesn't control him, but he controls it. See, he's not worried about his money. He's free. He's got a big life. He's got a generous life. He's got an open-handed life. He's got an others-centered life where people don't exist for him, but he exists for them. And the question is, how do you get to the place like Abraham? How do you get to the place where your stuff doesn't own you, but you own it? And the answer is worship, actually. That brings us to, to the last point. How do, you, how do you get a big life? It's worship. You know, maybe you're here today and you're not, you're not a Christian and you're thinking, you know, I don't, I don't need God to have a big life. I don't, I don't need God to have a meaningful life. I can, I can find significance in life without God. And if that's, if that's where you are, I want to challenge you on that today. Because if you are really thinking it out, that does not work. If this world is all there is, if, if there is no God, if you die and it is just game over, how can you say that life has any meaning? You know, if, if, if eternity, if eternity has no meaning, how can you say your present has any meaning? Somerset Maugham, who was a he was an English playwright and novelist in the 20th century. He was agnostic. He, he, didn't, he didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in an afterlife. And he once wrote this. He said, if one puts aside the existence of God and their survival after life is too doubtful, then one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither, 
If I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, then I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances I must conduct myself? And the answer is plain, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. The reason that Abraham has such a big life The reason that he's able to be so generous, the reason that he can say, Lot, you decide. The reason that he owns his stuff and his stuff doesn't own him is because none of these things have his heart. Something else does. And the question is, what is it? When you come to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, which has a lot to say about Abraham, verses 8 through 10 say this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God." Abraham's security was not in his wealth or his status or anything else. It was in God alone. See, Lot is worshiping his stuff, but Abraham is worshiping God. Lot is interested in the garden of the Lord and what God can give him. But Abraham's heart is set on God. And as a result, he's able to give everything else away. You see, but the question, now that's, hopefully that's a little insightful. But it doesn't just help for me to stand up here and say to you, so worship God more. Let's pray. Does that work for you? That works for no one. Let me tell you, the Christian gospel is always aiming for deeper than just your behavior. It is always aiming for your heart, for what is really going to change you. What's really going to get you to worship God like Abraham worshiped God. What's going to get you to do that? Well, God does something amazing at the end of this passage. In verses 14, he looks at Abraham. It says, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Now, what does God do in this moment? He reiterates to Abraham all of these incredible promises that he's made to him. But he does it on the heels of immense failure on Abraham's part. You know, last week we we looked at God's call on Abraham's life in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a son. But at the end of chapter 12, and we kind of skipped over this this week, but at the end of chapter 12, a famine comes into the land. And what does Abraham do? As soon as famine comes... He stops trusting the promises of God and he runs to Egypt. That's his first failure. You know what else he does when he gets to Egypt? Pharaoh thinks that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is pretty cute. 
And Pharaoh's got a little bit more power than Abraham. So you know what Abraham does? He says, let's tell Pharaoh that you're my sister so that he doesn't kill me. And Abraham become, I mean, Sarah becomes one of Pharaoh's concubines. This incredible failure. Abraham has failed to believe God's promises. He's failed to trust God. He's failed to follow the call. He has been unfaithful to God in every way. And in the midst of all of this, what does God do? He reiterates his love and his promises to God. How do you get a faith like Abraham? How do you get a big life? Friends, it is not just, it's not just belief in God. And it's not just worship in God, worshiping a God in general, but it is, you get a big life when you worship a God who will not fail you, even when you fail him. Do you have a God who can deal with your shame? Do you have a God that is big enough to deal with your failure? A God that's big enough to deal with your guilt, with all the ways that you look at your life and say, I'm not the person that I want to be. Do you have a God who can forgive you? You want to know what will turn your life upside down? What will really electrify you? What will give you a bigger life than you could ever fathom? It is the transforming power of forgiveness. There's a woman named Shannon Etheridge whose life was turned upside down when she was 16. She was 16 years old. She was driving on a rural two-lane country road when she hit a bicyclist, a young wife and young mother. And she killed her. It was her fault. And her life spiraled. She spiraled into depression, into despair, said she wanted to kill herself until one day the husband of that woman who had died showed up at Shannon Etheridge's door. And when she walked to that door, you know what he did? He grabbed her by the arms and he said, you cannot live your life under the weight of this guilt. And I want you to know that I forgive you. And it changed everything. You know what she does today? She writes books on forgiveness. Nothing will change your life like the transforming power of a God who longs to forgive you and who is able to forgive you. Something really interesting about Abraham's story is that when you're going to see this over the next couple of weeks, it is filled with failure. He just cannot seem to get it right. But when you come to the New Testament, you read a lot about Abraham. The New Testament writers are constantly talking about Abraham. You know what they never talk about? His failure. And well, why is that? It's not because they did not know his story. It's because they knew that his story had been transformed by another story. The story of a God who can forgive anyone, who can love anyone, who can change anyone. And that's actually the story that we find at this table where God invites broken, messy people 
who can't seem to get it right to come and feast on his love and to have our lives taken up into the story of God, where like Abraham, we are sent out into the world to love the world, to become a servant of others, to be free of our stuff, and to be generous with all that we have. All of that is found right here at this table. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, He broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for the good news that you have for us in this table. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see it and hearts to receive it this morning. We thank you that you have made a way for us to come and to feast with you and to know you. And it's not because of anything that we have done, but it is because of everything that your son has done for us. Would you help us to see in this meal and in your son that what is offered to us is a life that is far bigger than we could ever fathom. A life that is calling us out of ourselves and into the grand story of who we are in you and of all that you have come to do in us and for us and through us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.